Take your copy of God's Word. Join me in Matthew 18, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 18, in verses 21 to 35. This is a parable. We're going to look at a story, and I'll explain that more in a minute, so I know we're parachuting all around. Our title and topic is The Forgiving Church, and it's especially, especially appropriate because of the Lord's Day uh, and in light of the, the uh, supper that we're going to enjoy here at the end of this, uh, including our Psalm 103 reading. All of it is kind of a package, everything we've sung, read, and studied together I hope will be the force of making this principle real for all of us. So the title again is The Forgiving Church. Uh, There was a couple a few years back um, that had a rough patch in their marriage. Uh, That's true of all of us that have been married a period of time. There are seasons of good and seasons of rough patches that happen in our our marriages and we have to reconnect Uh, We have to kind of reorient. Sometimes we get a little disoriented in that. And so they were in one of those rough patches in their marriage. And so they decided, they came up with a strategy that they would do a 30-day kind of hiatus. And they created these two boxes. They called them fault boxes. They created two boxes and slips of papers were beside those boxes. And they agreed as a couple, they weren't going to bicker at each other. They weren't going to fight. They weren't going to be irritable with each other, they would just write it down. And at the end of the 30 days, they would try to get to the genesis of what was going on. What was the problem? Like, why are we so on each other's nerves, right? Why, why, why is this happening? And so they set a course for 30 days. After the 30 days, throughout those 30 days, you would see the wife going over and, you know, husband comes in from the outside and she'd go grab a slip of paper and she'd write it down, stick it in the fault box and well, the husband was participating too. Like he was equally going over the box, like, okay. And he would go over there and write something on a slip of paper and he'd drop it in the fault box. So at the end of 30 days, they got their two boxes. They sat down in the living room and the goal was to figure out why they are on each other's nerves in this rough patch. So she, um, he starts reading them. He's like, you know, coming in house with grass clippings all over your feet, uh, take, not taking your shoes off in the mud room. Um, you know, just tons of, you know, not writing the check in the checkbook ledger, um, dirty laundry on the floor. She just kept writing and writing all these things down. So he's reading them. And as he's reading them, he notices out of his peripheral vision, her, and she's sobbing. She's just distraught. And so he looks up at her, he's reading his. And what he had done is every time he went to that box, he wrote just three words. I love you. So she was reading, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she was writing down all these criticisms, right? And it was dramatic. It made the point. And so the husband was like, I just, I just have to choose to forgive. I just have to choose to bury the hatchet. I have to choose not to uh, hold an offense like 1 Corinthians 13 states. And I think it's important for us to understand what they were going through and look at it from the scriptural vantage point. I want you to see the power of forgiveness, the character of forgiveness and your own forgiveness, our common forgiveness, which we're going to celebrate at the Lord's table this morning. And I hope you walk away this morning hearing the Lord's three words, I love you, I love you, I love you. As Psalm 103 says, he has forgiven us of all 
our iniquities, right? All of our iniquities. So let's talk a little bit about character as we move into the passage, the character of forgiveness. Why is this such a big deal? Why did I choose this? Why do we celebrate the Lord's table? Why is this such a big deal in any local church, but in particular this local church? Well, first and foremost, God is the consummate forgiver. Uh, He literally sent his one and only son, which we'll celebrate in a moment, crushed his one and only son, the just for the unjust, and forgave us of our sins. That's the the heart of the, the gospel, right? And then you move to Christ, and Christ practiced forgiveness, did he not? On the cross, in severe pain, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They, they really don't know what they're doing. So you have it modeled in Christ. You have it declared in who God is. It's part of his very character. Forgiveness is the highest form of love. If you want to understand love, you understand forgiveness. It's the highest form. It, it, it really is what makes us attractive as a church. How do we reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we forgive one another... It makes us genuinely loving towards one another. And that love, Jesus said, they'll all know that you're my disciples when you have love one towards another. Furthermore, forgiveness is supernatural and spiritual in nature. The natural man, me in the flesh, you in the flesh, the natural man keeps a record of wrongs, seeks revenge, right? holds a grudge. That's the natural man. But a spiritual man, a godly man, not so. He, he understands forgiveness. He's been a recipient of forgiveness. And unforgiveness is an epidemic in our culture. Furthermore, forgiveness is the key to all relationships. How to sinners gather together this morning in this valley and get along and have unity and agree. It's because of mutual forgiveness. It's because we forgive one another. We love one another. It's, it's how sinful, imperfect people get along is that you demonstrate grace because you've been graced. You've experienced grace. You can't help but give grace away. Also, let me remind you that you are at your very best when you are demonstrating forgiveness when you're deploying forgiveness in your marriage, in your home, siblings, in church, in the community, when you display forgiveness, you're at your very best because you're acting like God. That's what God did for us. He forgave us all our iniquities. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all desperately in need of forgiveness And I know when I walk through the doors and I walk on this campus, I know that I'm the worst sinner in the room. I I fully wrangle with that. I fully wrestle with that. I owe a debt that I could never pay back. And so I sit at the feet of forgiveness, at the foot of the cross, there's forgiveness there. And I have been forgiven, you have been forgiven. And then horizontally, we need to learn to forgive one another. Bottom line, forgiven people, are forgiving people. Forgiven people are by nature forgiving people. An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction to the word of God and to the very gospel you hold dear. We are to forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 32. 
I find that this passage in Matthew 18, 21 to 35 is perfect to unmask unforgiveness and how crazy it is for a believer to hold unforgiveness in their heart. So let me give you a little bit of context in why I chose Matthew 18. First, uh, this particular passage, this particular chapter is a single evening in Peter's house in Capernaum. It's one message where the disciples are, are discussing and they have a question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? That's what they're asking. Who is the, who's the most awesome? Like who of all of us, who's awesome? Like who's gonna get the best position? That's the question. And so Jesus comes into the room and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And he's like, uh, we we're just discussing about who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom, you know? And so he launches into who is gonna be the greatest in the kingdom. And you know how he does it. Go to Matthew 18, just the first verse. Um, he does it by comparing us, a believer to a child. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying in verse one, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you, you turn and become like a child, not be a child or childish, but you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the humble Humility of a child is what defines greatness in the kingdom. Humility is the prize virtue for greatness in the kingdom. You've got to be, you've got to have like childlike humility, right? That's what Jesus says. And then what he does in the rest of the chapter, he says, this is what it looks like. This is what a believer's responsibility is. If you're childlike in your faith and you're walking in humility, this is what it's going to manifest This is what it looks like on the street. First, you'll protect one another in verses six to nine. And so he launches into these five one another's, five different paragraphs, five different one another's. You'll protect one another. Uh, Look at it here um, in, in verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones, these children like believers, who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, that's tough. You'd be better off dead than to cause another believer to stumble. Pretty serious, right? And then he walks through different one another's. You need to honor one another, verses 10 and 11. Verse Verses 12 to 14, you need to pursue one another. You have the the parable of the lost sheep. We go after them, you know, if, if... If one is lost of the 99, we're going after the one. That's what we do. We pursue one another in body life, in the context of the local church, in who we are. We care about one another. We pursue one another. And then sometimes we get to this dark spot and we actually discipline one another. And we have a whole list there, how you go to somebody. If you have conflict with them, you go to the person. And after you go to the person once, you go with multiple people. And then you you bring the whole church involved if it gets to that level. And then ultimately, you might have to even put them out of the church. And there's the only place in the New Testament where there's a clear list of how you handle conflict in the context of the local church. And there's the church discipline text there. And then in juxtaposition to church discipline, you have what we have before us this morning. And that is that we are to forgive one another. Notice their proximity. So he's saying you've got to discipline one another because they've sinned. 
Now he's saying, well, Peter's asking a question like, how, how many times do we forgive them? It's a fair question. I mean, how many times do we do this? Like, how many times can they sin, come back to the church, publicly admit they didn't, you know, go back? How many times do we do this? He's, he's asking a good question. Here, here's the deal with Peter. I like Peter. He gets himself in trouble, but he asks great questions. And we are the beneficiaries of his questions because Jesus always answered Peter's questions, and they were profound and insightful. It's a question we ask each other. How many times can I forgive my wife for doing this? How many times can she forgive me for bringing grass clippings in after mowing all day and not taking my shoes off outside? We put an outside shower in. How many times is he going to walk past that shower and not, you know, like how many times? And so it's a fair question. And so Jesus sets course to, to answer that singular question. How many times? And what we discover is that we're called to be a forgiving church. Let's read the passage together. Now that we have context, we know the character of forgiveness and how close it is to the very heart of God. We've seen the example in this couple, how you trumpet with clear love and covering of sin. Now look at the text. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times in a day? Jesus said to him, no, I do not say to you seven times, but seven times seven times, which would be 490 times. I would venture to say that none of us have had somebody in a single day sin against us 490 times, right? It's hyperbole. Therefore, Let me tell you a story, Jesus says. Let me tell you a story. The the kingdom of heaven is compared to this king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. It's April 15th. It's tax time. We're going to settle up. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Wow. And so the servant, in response to the demand, fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the entire debt. But, strong contrast, but when that same servant, he went out and he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him by the throat and he began choking him, saying, pay me what you owe me. Well, so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison, a debtor's prison, until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants, those that are around watching this, saw what he had had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and told the master, 
all that had taken place, that his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, how could you? I forgave you all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he paid all of his debt. And here's the principle. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Your brother, forgiveness from your heart. What I wanna do is walk through and give you kind of the three marks of biblical forgiveness in this account, in this particular story uh, this morning. And the first mark is before us. It is forgiveness is unlimited. I wanna point out to you here that forgiveness is unlimited, seen in verses 21 and verse 22 of this particular section. Again, forgiving people, forgiven people are forgiving people, right? Peter knew how important it was to forgive, but he believed it ought to be in moderation. It's never, you know, unending, infinite forgiveness. There had to be, there had to be some qualifier to the kind of forgiveness. And so he asked the question, how often... How often? And he offers seven times, and that's significant. Notice the context, it's a brother. So we're not talking about unbelievers here. It's not talking about your crazy neighbor. You know, it's brothers. It's in community. It's in the context of community. And so in human reason, it, in Peter's mind, it had to have some limit. And the reason why is rabbinic tradition. In Yoma 86b, it stated that you were to forgive up to three times. So they quantified it in this extra biblical literature and so the rabbinical tradition said three times. So when Peter says seven, he's doubling it plus one. So he's actually thinking, I'm being awesome. I'm like, I'm being super charitable. I'm going above what rabbinic tradition would hold as the limits to our forgiveness. Even though we know biblically our forgiveness is unlimited, He's trying to moderate. He's trying to sort through this. He's trying to kind of get his mind around it. And so he actually is in a position here in verses 21 and 22 to think he's pretty big hearted. He's like, I am like killing it with forgiveness. Seven times, seven times. Peter knew his duty was to forgive. He was well acquainted with forgiveness, but he had to believe it had a limit. When is enough enough with people? When do you move on? When do you say that? That just can't keep happening. And so Jesus gives the punchline to the story up front. He says, no, it's not seven. It's seven times 70, which is 490 times. And let's presume this is a single day. Jesus is using hyperbole to make the point. It's ongoing, a lifestyle of forgiveness. It never has an end to it. That's That's what it is. There are no boundaries. It's unlimited. So he's asking like, how how often should I forgive my wife? It's a lifestyle, right? As we saw in this couple. I love you. I love you. I love you. It just is all the time you're asking forgiveness. It's a lifestyle of forgiveness. So much so that it becomes a habit for the believer. 
So we forgive one another. Based on 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not count wrongs suffered against it, right? It's love. It's the highest form of love when we demonstrate forgiveness. And so Jesus literally holds up a mirror for us all to see, in particular Peter and the gang here in Peter's house in Capernaum. He holds up a mirror and says, There's an infinite amount of forgiveness that's going to come out of you. Why? Because God has forgiven you over and over and over again. We confess our sins all the time, right? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1, 9. We can't measure God's forgiveness in our own lives. And certainly, we should not measure forgiveness in the body life of the local church. We are to be exemplary. We are to be forgiving people. And so Jesus makes a sharp point. It's not seven times, Peter, as charitable as that sounds to you, and I know you're trying to moderate it, it's actually 490 times. This is magnanimous forgiveness. It's ongoing forgiveness. It's a way of life. Don't try to quantify it. It's to infinity and beyond, to borrow from Buzz Lightyear. It just keeps going and going and going. Forgiveness is unlimited. That's the first mark. It's in the first two verses. The point's out there for you to digest and to think about. But the second mark is a little bit longer. Forgiveness is unconditional. Not only is it unlimited, but it's also unconditional. And that's the point of the story. And so he paints this vivid, colorful parable, this visible, colorful drama of a story. Now, just to give you some help with a parable and translating, because the people go crazy with parables. They try to do crazy things with it. So the idea behind a parable is to create shock and awe, right? It's the idea is to stun you, to cause you to sit up and go, that is completely craziness. That's crazy. Like, how is that possible? You would act like that. You would never, nobody would do that. That's unjust. That's the idea behind the story. He's creating a great story. So a couple rules for parabolic translation. First, number one, it's an earthly story, but has a heavenly meaning. You saw it at the end of verse 35. He tells the whole story and this says, hey, this is the bottom line. So it's an earthly story, but it has a heavenly punch, a heavenly kick. A heavenly point. Second, there's one truth. Not many truths in it. So you're not trying to pick apart the parable in your exegesis and try to make everything mean something. Who's the king and who's this and who's that? Who's the jailers? The jailers are, they're they're the elders, right? They're the extortionists. You know, it's not, that's not what is behind parable translation. You're not pushing all the elements. You're not trying to find meaning in all the details. So it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It has one particular principle, which we're going to learn this morning, and you don't push the details. You don't try to double-click on every word and try to figure out what it is. That would not be a proper way to translate a story, just like you telling a story. And I don't know about you, but my stories get better as I age. Like They're like happened 20 years ago, and sometimes I wonder, did I really do that? You know, you kind of tell your story, and it's so good, and people are laughing, and you're like, I'm not, I think I might have lied. I don't, think, I don't think I did that. You know, you ever do that, like, kind of like, I, I think I went over the top, because you're telling the story, and you're adding color, and all of a sudden, there was a Mack truck, and then you realize, wow, there maybe wasn't a truck coming, you know? Maybe it was a Datsun that hit you, but you, it sure sounded better. You got T 
T-bone by an 18-wheeler than a little Datsun that, you know, knocked out your Ford F-150. You know what I'm saying? You kind of, so you get kind of caught in this whole storytelling bit. And so he says, this is how the kingdom of heaven is. See what he says? Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is compared to, and he starts the story. So this is what kingdom forgiveness looks like in the context of the local church in the one another's. This is what it looks like. This is how the Christian life ought to be. And he said there's this king. That king most likely would be a reflection of who Jesus is. It's probably IRS time in the first century. It's a kind of time of reckoning and and debting and getting the debtors together and the collectors together. And this is not a fun time. Just like our April 15th, we, we wag our heads and think, oh, government, you know. And it, it's just a, it's a little bit of an exasperating time of year that he's painting this picture. And he said there's a, there's a debtor brought to him. He didn't come on his own. Do you notice that in the text? He was actually brought, like summoned, like, hey, come on in. It's time to pay the piper. Time to, to pay up for what you owe and so he brought him in, and he owes this spectacular amount. You see it in the text? They brought him in, and he owed 10,000 talents. Now, how did he get here? It doesn't tell us. It's not a part of the story. You can't, like, build a whole thing on incompetence in business and being an entrepreneur. That's not what this is about. That's not what the story's doing. But it does lend itself to make you wonder. It was either incompetence or embezzlement. Because when I explain to you how much he owes, it is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary and spectacular amount, but we don't know what he did to get himself in this mess. It's not important to the story, but it's at least interesting, right? What we do know is that he owed 10,000 talents. It's a measure of money. A talent is a measure of money. And to give you some indication that all of the revenue of Idumea, Judea, Samaria amounted to about a million talents. You know, I mean, a thousand talents. That's about what it amounted to. And he owns 10,000. So let's just say it like this. He owed a bazillion dollars. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to get the specific dollar amount because we don't push the parable too far. But he's trying to create like this dramatic understanding that he owed more than he could ever pay back is the principle, right? It's impossible to pay this debt back. As a matter of fact, someone kind of calculated it. This is what commentators do. They kind of dig into this stuff and go a little crazy. But someone calculated it and said it was, he owed 275,000 years of wages. The bottom line is he's not going to pay it back. He can't pay it back. He owed a debt, do you get it, that he couldn't pay. It's a story. Sound familiar? With my sin and your sin? We owe a debt. We, we couldn't pay on our own. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent his son. And so the king pronounces a verdict. He's going to make an example of this guy. He's got to make an example of this guy because if not, people are going to take the same kind of embezzlement strategy or the same kind of incompetent business strategy that got him into this mess. And so he's got to deal with it. He's got to, he's got to make an example of the, his, the, his, this guy. And so he, he's got a huge debt. There's got to be a huge consequence, right? There has to be a huge penalty. And the penalty was to be sold into slavery. Not only himself, it was so much in this story. You sell his wife and his kids and everyone is sold off into slavery. It's not going to be enough to co cover the amount, but it's enough to make a point. 
It's enough to go, wow. And people are looking back going, man, that's a little harsh taking his wife, his kids. Are, they're in junior high. Like, can they really work themselves out? Like, how is this going to even work? It just makes you get all kind of weird inside. Like, wow, that's unjust. That's weird. That's toxic. You know, like you've got all this stuff going on in your head in this current culture right now. And you're trying to figure it all out. And that's the desire of Jesus telling the story. You know, it's a gesture, not a settlement. There's no way he could pay it back. Well, like any man would, self-preservation kicks in. I got to do something here. And he goes to plead. He pleads his case. It's fair. It's fair. And uh, he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. That's a bold statement. He couldn't in his lifetime pay it back, but he makes the plea. And... uh, you know, he's, he, he's in a lowly position. He falls on the ground. And it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek language. That means he keeps pleading over. It's incessant. He's like, please, please, I beg you, don't take my kid. Don't take my wife. Don't take, don't take my life. I'll never, I, it's, it's like prison today. You can't work your way out of it. They don't pay you enough. And so you never end up paying off the debt. It's kind of a ridiculous model. This is crazy. I'm good at what I do. I can work myself out of this debt. Please don't do this. And so he promises the world, he says, I'll repay every dollar, every single dollar I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay back. I'll repay everything. And then there's like a white space there, and there's a pause. And what happens next is just dramatic. Just what you were hoping for as the drama unfolds. He says, and out of pity for him and his family, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Oh, that's such a beautiful picture, is it not? It's like, whew, that was a close call. Feels like our own common salvation, right? Our own common forgiveness here in this church. Like we've been forgiven of so much. We've been graced. And now this guy goes from being the most extreme debtor in all of Palestine to absolutely Freedom, absolute freedom, liquidity, back on his feet instantly because this king shows generosity, shows pity, shows grace, grace upon grace. And you see here that in this simple sentence that the grace of God just bursts through all boundaries in this passage. It's unbelievable. It's beautiful, it's good, it's right, it's just, it's like, wow, this is awesome. And it's what you experience if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the kind of forgiveness you've experienced and continue to experience, right? It's not finite forgiveness. It's not uh, two or three sins or a package. You, gotta, you could buy a package when you get saved. I get a 300 forgiveness package or a thousand package. No, it's ongoing forgiveness, right? Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, God will remember my transgressions no more. Wow. Well, then something dramatic happens in the story. Look at verse 28. The word but's there. It's a strong contrast. Day, but. When that same servant went out, so he hustles away, He's probably kicking his boots in the air. He's like, yes. He's like high five. He's like fist pumping. Yes. But when he, the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. What 
unthinkable behavior, inexcusable, inconceivable, a moral monstrosity that he's now going to go to somebody else around April 15th and take advantage of them. It's so bizarre and such a strong contrast, it, it just brings out vitriol in us. Like it just in motion, when you're reading, you should be going, that is not right. That is wrong. So the joyous debtor skips down the steps, completely forgiven, forgetting his past circumstances. He now, but strong adversity, holds somebody else accountable. And we're introduced to this, this contrary position. We're not expecting this to happen. Well, the fellow slave owned 100 denarii. 100 denarii, you basically made one denarii a day's work. So you're talking 100 days work. And notice he didn't say, I'll pay it all back to you in the text. He just says, I'm going to pay it back because he could. The other one pleaded for mercy. He couldn't pay it back. This one actually could. He was 100 days out. We've all been in debt. You probably don't own your house outright. You know, you, you have debt and you understand debt and there's good debt and there's bad debt and there's manageable debt. And so this is, this is possible. Now, the guy, like a mob boss, you know, out of Chicago wants it paid up in full right then. He's like, hey, man. Give me 100 days, and I'll get you money. I, I can do this. I can liquidate some things. I can sell the one, you know, platinum F-150. I can, you know what I'm saying? I can, get, I can get there quick. I can get there if you give me a chance, right? We've all been in this place, and a lot of you have lived on the planet a long time. You've been at the top of your game, and you've been at your bottom of your game three or four times in your lifetime. You know, you didn't have two nickels, and then you had a bunch of nickels right? And then you didn't have two nickels. Like that's how life works. That's the cycle of, of living in a sin-filled world. Things are unpredictable, right? We didn't predict 2008. We didn't pre predict 2021, right? We didn't see these things coming. And so you have to make decisions. But bottom line is he owned this infinitesimal amount of debt. It was, it was manageable. It was possible to, to, to fix it. It wasn't some 275,000 years. This was 100 days. Shouldn't have been a big deal, right? He could pay it back. And before the man even says anything, do you see his posture? He grabs him by the throat and he starts choking him. Like, give me my Give me my hundred denarii. This is a guy that just got forgiven 275,000 years. This is ludicrous. He starts demanding his money. And, and from the way the language is written, it's like he's squeezing him so hard, there's blood dripping from his nose. Literally, he was wringing his neck. He had the legal right. He owed him money. He did have the legal right. He didn't have the moral right, right? It wasn't morally right to do this. And so this same debtor takes the same position. And so his fellow servant fell down, same thing as above, pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you back. Not I won't pay you back everything because he could pay him back. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay back the debt. It's called a debtor's prison, and you never get out of it. That's what's behind it. It's It's punishment. Similar to what we do when we incarcerate people, they can't, they don't make $18.50 an hour, they make a buck fifty an hour, you know, even in white collar prisons. I don't know if you've been around prison work at all and ministry, it, you, you don't get out of it. You can't get out from under it. It's the point. He throws him in prison. He's punishing him. He's, he's taking his licks out on this guy. 
And this is, evokes, in the story, it evokes anger. It's a deep feeling of grief. This is crazy. This shouldn't happen. Well, it's also true of his peers. His peers also say, this is wrong. This is a moral outrage, right? This same guy who's been forgiven now is holding this guy guilty. And so they go, they bring some accountability. And so the text says they were distressed and they went to the king, their master, and they said, let me tell you what just took place. The guy you forgave earlier this morning is choking a guy down in the corner of 5th and 3rd Avenue. He's choking the guy, and he only owes him 100 days wage. That is crazy. And you should be going, I'm, that's wrong. And it should, it should cause you to get like, man, this is like not right. And it's not the way it should be handled. And you know, James 2, we know James 2.13 says, judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. So if you're a person of no mercy and just pay your debts and you're harsh and, and you treat people with mer- lack of mercy and no pity, no grace, no mercy like you have experienced, it should make you suspicious where you're at with the Lord, right? At least suspicious. And so look at verse 32. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I can't believe it. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have been merciful on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? Wow. He called him a wicked slave. It's, I mean, a wicked servant, slave, uh, scoundrel, villain. Those are synonyms here. There's no doubt about it. In the king's opinion, he's saying, what audacity, right? All the debt's been forgiven. And even as I have forgiven you, you have not shown that same forgiveness. He says, should you have not? And the answer is yes. Should you have not shown grace? Should you have not shown mercy? Forgiveness is the believer's lasting obligation because you have been forgiven yourself of so much. So the king in anger in this story took action. You want to live by justice? Fine. You're going to the slammer. You're going to go work off your 275,000 years. You're going to go to the jailer. King James says the extortioners or extractors, right? It's almost like solitary confinement. We're going to put you in hard labor. I'm going to put you in hard labor prison. You'll never get out of that prison the rest of your life because you want to hold somebody else liable when you've been forgiven of everything. It's challenging right? Now, can a believer hold unforgiveness in their heart? I think so for a season. I think if we were all honest, we've had these, that could, when I say a season, that could be a day, it could be a week, it could be months, we struggle. We've, we've experienced hard things in our lives. I, I have grace towards that, right? But if it is no to forgiveness, and it's, uh, it's some kind of condition you put on it in order to forgive this person has then, then you're in trouble, right? You, so can we be at odds with each other and have a little bit of bitterness? Sure, and we've got to be grown up and smart and repent of our sins and ask forgiveness. And so we do that in our marriages. Sometimes, you know, you, you're like frustrated, so you go to bed angry, you know, and you're like, I'm going to wait her out. I'm going to smoke her out, you know. I'm going to go like three days. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to work in the yard. I'm going to bring more grass clippings than I've ever had in the house. All right, a little vengeance, like I know what you're thinking. 
That kind of sounds like I've been there, right? Um, so, you know, I can see that, and then you go, man, I am so stupid, because you're a believer, you have to forgive, right? <laughs> if you don't forgive, guess what? This is the point of this parable. You're not a believer. You're not. That's the harshness of it. That's the, that's the punch. That's the punch line. If you say, I will not forgive them, I can. I'm going to my grave. I'm not going to do it. You can't be a Christian. It's a contradiction in terms. But yes, can you have moments of stupidity? Sin makes us stupid, right? Makes me stupid, makes you stupid. That's just the way it is. You get stupid. You are like this second guy. You're out there choking people out. When you've been forgiven everything in this life, and some of you have been on this trail a long time, like some of you got some gray hair and some to the point of no hair. You've got a, like a massive amount of sin that you've been forgiven of, right? And to whom much is given, much is required. Like you've been on the planet long enough to like accumulate a, a pretty big pot of sin. And yet he forgives you over and over again. He's going to forgive you tomorrow when you're silly, you know? When you look at that person driving down the freeway and thinking, what are they doing, you know? You're, you're, gonna, you're going to... You're, you're going to you're going to need forgiveness, right? You get it. But listen, folks, you cannot hold on and be bitter and destroy your life in unforgiveness and claim to be a Christian. You can't. That's the whole point of the parable. So he ends with this third principle. Unforgiveness is unbelievable. So we've got forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is unconditional. And unforgiveness is unbelievable. It's a category beyond the Lord's comprehension. And this is why he told Peter the story, because Peter thought, I'll forgive up to a point. And Jesus says, no. It's not how believers live. It's not how believers talk. You know, and even sometimes like Jane and my wife and I will joke and I'll, she'll, she'll say, you know, like, you have to forgive me or you're not a Christian, which scares you when you're a pastor, right? Like, it's like the ultimate spook. You know, she's like, ah, and I was like, ah, I got you. And so I was like, oh, I repent. Then I'm not really repenting. You know, you see all these things that go on in our, our homes. Like, and you're as weird as I am. Just want you to admit it, you know? Like, just be honest here, Corey. Can you help me out a little bit? Like, talk to me. Like, let's, come on, we got this. So look at verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you and me, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. So there's moments and there are seasons and you gotta confess your sin and work through it. But if it's sustained and it's deep in your heart and you can't get past it, something's not right. It's like Jesus has no category for you holding unforgiveness when you've been forgiven, right? Because forgiven people are forgiving people. That's the, the principle. And so he's, he's swift to, to make the point here that we have to forgive. So we can be, we can find ourselves in an unforgiven moments and we put ourselves in relationship jail, right? You put yourself in relationship jail because you distance yourself from the Lord because it's the heart of the Lord to forgive when you're holding a grudge or you're bitter or whatever. You put yourself in relational jail. If you permanently are unforgiving and it's been sustained and you can't get past it, then you put yourself in eternal jeopardy in eternal jail. See the differences? So I'm given grace because I know my own propensities and heart, but, and I think the text is too, but if you say, I can't, I can't get past it, um, then you're gonna evoke relationally judgment on yourself or eternal judgment on yourself. And so Peter asks a brilliant question and out of it, we get the doctrine of forgiveness. 
unconditional, unlimited, grace upon grace, and pity on us like the story. We're not going to push all the elements. We're not going to get weird with it. But that is what you've experienced. You've experienced God's unlimited, unending grace. He has, as Bob read, he has forgiven us, forgiven us of all of our iniquities. How dare we hold a grudge? We have to bury the hatchet as my mom and dad used to always say. You got to bury the hatchet. I don't know where the phrase comes from. I don't know if they're throwing hatchets back then or what they were doing, but you got to bury the hatchet. Like you got to put it away. You got to learn to forgive because you've been forgiven. And I think sometimes it's good for us to stop and to breathe in the air of a kind of just down the fairway gospel message on genuine forgiveness. You have been forgiven of so much. How dare we, me, uh, hold any grudge against anyone, right? It's just crazy. But it's not the only place it's written. I'll close with this, but Ephesians 4 and um, verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that's not the only place, right? You can go to Proverbs uh, 19, where it's the glory of a man to forgive a transgression. I mean, forgiveness is, is kind of everywhere because it's, it's, it's ground zero for the gospel. You have been forgiven, therefore you are a forgiving person. And I want you to stay out of any kind of spiritual prison. 